Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hey there, I've said this before, but it bears repeating. To the extent that uh, I know what I'm doing on the show, uh, my goal has been to give you a, a real mix of guests Sometimes we have deep end of the pool meditation teachers, and then sometimes we have just really interesting people from all walks of life, celebrities, athletes, scientists, etc., who have amazing stories and meditation practices of their own. Uh, our next guest is from an industry where you wouldn't imagine there would be a whole lot of uh, meditation, video games, I will admit, uh, as my guest stares at me warily, that the, uh, <laughs> and I say this at the risk of alienating my, uh, my guest's uh, core constituency, that I know almost nothing about video games. I did love Miss Pac-Man and Frogger when I was a kid in the 80s. Uh, wh- what I do know about the video game industry, though, is that it's incredibly lucrative and a hugely influential segment of the entertainment industry. Uh, for example, uh, when my guest talked about my book on his podcast recently, I heard about it on Twitter from an unbelievable number of people. <laughs> Uh, his name is Dan Rickert. He's a senior editor at Giant Bomb, which is an enormously popular video game website. And uh, Dan has written a book called Anxiety as an Ally, How I Turned a Worried Mind into My Best Friend. This is a really raw memoir of Dan's struggles with panic attacks and anxiety, uh, all of which I can relate to viscerally, of course. Uh, and then he also talks about how meditation really helped. So, Dan, thanks for coming in, man. Absolutely. Really appreciate Honored. it. Thank you. Um, uh, how, when did the panic and anxiety start, and how bad was it? I, I think there was probably always an element of social anxiety growing up. I was always kind of just kind of the outsider weird kid who was obsessed with video games and professional wrestling, and I never really gelled with all the kids in my school that were really into sports and everything. So I was socially anxious, but there was never panic attacks. And I never even knew what that term was or what that felt like. And my first one was I was 18. Uh, it was winter break from my first first semester of college. And I was seeing Gangs of New York. So it would have been like New Year's Day 2003, I believe. And uh, near the end of the movie, super long movie, it's like three hours long. And you know, I'm in the middle of the row. There's a lot of people here, which anyone with anxiety knows that can be a major yeah, trigger for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And I just started feeling this unexplainable, uh, just this ominous sense of dread wash over me, which again, anyone who has anxiety knows that feeling. But I had no idea what that was. And so all I knew is that like I had to get out of that theater immediately. I was around all these people. I just needed to go decompress and just figure out what the hell was going on with me. So I just sat in the bathroom, and I, I didn't know if I was dying. I didn't know if I needed to call 911. Uh, but I left, looked up a bunch of stuff on the Internet, couldn't really find anything, did all that dumb self-diagnosis stuff where it's like, oh, I've got this disease and this and this and this that were all untrue. Uh, and then a week later, I saw some Lord of the Rings movie. I think it was the second one, and exact same thing. And so then I'm super confused because it's only happening in movie theaters for a while. Uh, and I, I, I kept Googling and Googling and Googling, and nothing made sense. I started going to doctors and, you know, all the tests, the thyroid tests, blood tests, all this stuff. And everything came up completely normal. You know, there were nights at the emergency room where I thought for sure I was going to have a heart attack. And, uh, no, everything was fine. And eventually uh, I learned, like one doctor said, like, oh, you probably have, you know, panic disorder. And then I actually had, like, a term that I could Google, I could look up. And while that can, it's not necessarily great to just be looking up on the internet and looking at message boards about conditions and hearing people that aren't professionals talk about it, but it was good to be able to see this thing that other people had, uh, to go to message boards and have people describe similar experiences that I had. It, it felt like it wasn't just this weird diagnosis that had gone on just me. It felt like it was part of a larger thing. 
Uh, and so that helped, but, you know, it's not like you get a diagnosis and it just goes away. No. Uh, so no. It, it's just been a, a long, long uh, path of seeing what works, seeing what doesn't. Um, but it wasn't just panic disorder. You were also then diagnosed with generalized right. anxiety disorder. Yeah, that diagnosis came a little bit later because it started with just the situational, I'm in a movie theater, I can't get out, an airplane type stuff, panic attacks. And then I started having things in college where uh, it would just be a normal day. I'd just be sitting around playing video games or, or watching a movie, you know, very unstressful situations. And I would just have this underlying hum of anxiety all the time. And uh, that felt very different to me. And I got the diagnosis for uh, GAD. So, yeah, it, it's a fun combination. Um, mm -hmm. So when I'm not having, you know, the full panic attacks back then, I had to worry about like, oh, am I just going to have this overwhelming sense of dread all day? How long is this going to last? And uh, it, it's a lot of figuring out what works for you and what doesn't. How bad did it get at its worst? Uh, boy, um, I remember in, in college when I went to class, they would do the roll call. And a lot of times it was, you know, these big classes, three, four hundred people. And, um, well, that might be exaggerating. I think it's more like a hundred. These big auditorium classes. And they would be going down. Uh, so, and, and by the way, this is yeah. Kansas State University? Yeah, University of Kansas. University. Uh, not not K-State, uh, KU. KU. Yeah, okay. yeah. And so, yeah, they'd be working down the list, and as it got closer to me, um, to my name, uh, I would just feel it start to kind of rise. I would feel the heartbeat start to raise. My, my breath would get shallow. And I would always just envision myself sprinting out of the room, just having to get out of there. Um, so it was around that period where I couldn't even say here. That's all I had to do was they were telling me to say here. No one was going to be looking at me. I didn't have to deliver on anything, but I couldn't handle it. Um, and around the same time, I worked at this call center, and they would have us do introductions when we hired new people. Like, at the beginning of every shift, we'd stand up and be like, oh, I'm Dan, I'm a junior, and I'm from here, and my favorite whatever is blank. Um, and I couldn't do that. I had to talk to my boss and be like, hey, I, I don't know what's going on here. I just can't do it. I had to start coming in late every day whenever there was a new hire. There would be like a two-week period where I just had to come in 30 minutes late, so I'd skip the introduction part. Um, which I, I found really helpful talking to bosses about stuff like that because as soon as people know that you've got something like this, then it's if you have to leave a room or something or if you're seeming quiet, uh, they'll know like, oh, okay, he told me about this. This is an anxiety thing. Not just like, oh, he's being weird or why did he run out of this room? You know? Yeah, I mean, one of the things you talk about in the book is that consistently when you present uh, your issue, issues to people uh, uh, to whom you need to report, like bosses or professors or whatever – Everybody's incredibly understanding, and that's really cool. But I will say, having had a number of panic attacks myself, it is virtually impossible to explain what it's like to somebody who has not had a panic attack. Yes, uh, and that, that is part of the reason I wanted to write that book is because while it is impossible to, you know, if you've never had a panic attack— because people tend to say, like, oh, just chill out. What are you worried about? And it's like, well, no, that's you don't know what this feels like. You know, the logical part of my brain knows that I'm not in danger right now. I don't need to activate this fight or flight thing. Um, so books like, you know, I, I think yours, uh, for sure, like you you describing. Uh, I, when I read yours and you talked about being on the air, you know, I have to be on the air a lot. I have to do live appearances and things. And those are just major triggers for panic attacks for me. Uh, so I wanted to describe that feeling, you know, what it was like when I had that first panic attack, what it was like going forward. You know, the book is not a, a how-to on how to get better necessarily because I'm, I'm no expert whatsoever, but I wanted it to explain what it was like. So if somebody had anxiety, especially like, you know, guys that are my demographic, gamers, that 
there's not a lot of talk about stuff like this necessarily. Like and there like really that. isn't. I mean, they're outliers, obviously. Maybe maybe rage is acceptable. To <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah it, it's it's not really a uh, community. Uh, you know, there are some places online, some communities where they talk very openly about this stuff. Sometimes overshare, but by and large, I think people don't talk about stuff in like this. in the video game industry. Exactly. Right. And, well, I mean, I was interested to listen to the extent I, I, you sent me the podcast where you yeah. guys talked about meditation and my book and everything, and like. Everything leading up to it was completely indecipherable for me, <laughs> and then everything uh, that followed was completely indecipherable for me. And then there was like this really forthright discussion yeah. uh, about your emotions and panic and meditation, and one of your colleagues had been on a silent meditation retreat, and it was really interesting because these – I loved hearing it from – you know, I mean, my whole purpose in life in many ways is to get – meditation accepted mm-hmm. in different corners of the culture and to hear these like died in the wool video game guys talk about this stuff was just i mean i i can only imagine you did an enormous amount of good because while well people in the meditation in excuse me in the video game world may not talk about this stuff everybody has emotions oh yeah yeah and either you're unaware of them and they control you or you're aware of them and can have some magnitude of of control over them yeah, and being able to talk about that on the podcast was huge because, you know, I relish any chance to talk about that. One of the great things about our podcast is we embrace tangents. I mean, we'll spend an hour talking about fast food or whatever. It's not just this hard video game news thing all the time. It's three hours long every week, and a lot of it is just like, what did you do this weekend? And that's why Drew, my colleague, talked about going on that silent meditation retreat. And as soon as I saw that, I saw my end because I don't want to be that guy that gets on a soapbox and tries to shoehorn meditation into every conversation. But it's like, well, Drew brought it up. It's on the table. Let's talk about this. And we talked for so long about it that I remember afterwards I even told my boss, like, sorry if I just talk so much about that. I just get really excited when I get a chance to talk about it. Um, but the feedback on that was incredible. Like, I got a tsunami of tweets <laughs> after that. Really? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. That was really a wake-up call for me. I mean, I know I have a friend who's – I met a guy recently who actually owns a video game company. So I have some <laughs> sense of, of – the sheer power. I, I hesitate to discuss this because if any of your fans listen, they're going to hate me for <laughs> no. not knowing anything. But, but I have a sense of the sheer power of the industry and and uh, as a cultural force and, yeah. and as a as a as a financial force. But, but just that that was a real powerful illustration to listen to you guys talk about it and then to see it show up in my my Twitter feed. There there is a ton of passion in that community for video games that I, I think is a little more intense than you see a lot of the time in, in movies or other elements of pop culture. Like people see it as an identity a lot of the times. Like a lot of people are like, "That's what I am. I am a gamer." And I don't know if that's necessarily healthy to attach your entire identity to one thing. Like I am just a guy that plays video games. Um, but there are a lot of people out there like that. And uh, yeah, being able to reach them and, and maybe introduce them to something like meditation that they wouldn't seek out necessarily. Yeah, that that's something that'd be great to do. And that's why I like being able to talk about it on something like this. Yeah. Okay. Well, so sp- speaking of you um here you are sitting here talking to me uh, like full sentences having a good time <laughs> laughing and smiling i've listened to you on the podcast doing the same thing um and as you describe in your book and you just made a mention of just a couple, couple minutes ago you actually do public appearances yeah. how did you get from being unable to say the word here in a university classroom to being a public figure I, I think it's because I forced myself to whenever something did scare me, like the idea of doing a public appearance uh, or the idea of going on a podcast, I knew that that road I- is bad. If you say, hey, I don't want to be on this podcast because I'm nervous, 
Because then it's like, okay, I can't do a podcast because I'm nervous about that. And then what happens? Like, oh, if you have a panic attack on the highway, it's like, oh, I can never drive on the highway. And your world gets smaller and smaller, and you box yourself in if you go down that route. I don't want to become agoraphobic. So the more something scared me, the more I always attacked it, whether that was a podcast or a video thing. And when I started the Giant Bomb, see, Giant Bomb does this thing where we do all these conventions, and we, you know, very passionate fan base that comes out, and, you know, we'll fill a room with 1,000, 2,000 people. And uh, this happens several times a year. And my old job at Game Informer, we, uh, we didn't do any public appearances That's like another... That. that was a magazine. Oh, it's so a that, magazine, yeah. That was more strictly, you know, just writing. You know, I pushed a lot for, like, video content, more personality stuff, but they weren't really having it, so I went to Giant Bomb. And I knew that they did these live appearances. And nothing terrified me more than the idea of doing this. You know, I couldn't say here. I, I dropped out of classes when I heard that there was going to be presentations. Um, and so I realized I didn't want to go down that route, so I told my boss right when I got hired, I said, anytime we were doing a public thing, Anytime we're going to be in front of a crowd, please put me on that panel because that's I, I want to get over this. Uh, and that is how you get over this stuff is, is you face it head on. Uh, and each time you do it, it becomes less scary. And, and I still have it. I still have the anxiety. I've got it right now. Um, but you do it. You never say, I, I don't think I've ever said no to something because the idea of it has made me anxious, whether that's jumping out of a plane or getting in front of 2,000 people or doing a podcast. Literally jumping out of a plane. Uh, seven times. Wow. Yeah. By myself, tandem, all that stuff. Like, it scares the shit out of me. But- you know, that's why I did it. So I think that's incredibly brave, and I think it's really important because there are a lot of people with anxiety and panic disorder, and myself among them, um, who do make their world smaller. You know, I mean, I could have decided the easier route would have been to not go on television again after I freaked <laughs> out in front of uh, five million people. Um, uh but, but because it is the natural thing, you know, it's the natural thing. And actually, I just ask you just for a little bit of advice, because I have made my world smaller in a few ways because of panic disorder. For example, I can't get an MRI. Oh, really? Too claustrophobic. I can't even get an open MRI because uh, even that scares me too much. And I don't know what to do, but I actually have a shoulder injury that oh. is untreated because I can't get in the stupid MRI. So what would you say that I should do? I mean, I had that exact same thing. I, I got an MRI about a year and a half ago, and I'd never had one. I'd heard about them. I had heard that people that you know weren't typically anxious people freaking out in there. And I was like, well, this is going to be bad. I'm going to hate this. But I just you just bite the bullet, and, and you have to do it, no matter how much it scares you. Did you panic? Uh, yeah, totally. And you just sat through the panic. Yeah, I, you know, and I ask, I always ask an obnoxious amount of questions before anything like this. It's like, okay, so if I need to get out, okay, what do I do? I squeeze this little bubble thing? Okay, so you'll know. So if I squeeze it, like, you'll get me out real quick? Like, okay, okay, so I'll be all right. Like, I ask so many questions and, and annoy the hell out of people uh, a lot of the time. But I just want to make sure that I know what I'm getting into, but I'll never say no. I might, might over-ask people and bug them about stuff like that, but uh, I got in there, and uh, I wouldn't say full-blown panic attack, but it's a long thing, and you got to, like, hold your breath and all that, and it was, it was extremely uncomfortable for a while. But you just do it. You just you just have to. Like, I know that's such a cliche thing to say. Oh, just do it or whatever. But that's kind of been how I've approached all these things. Is just just walk out there. Like, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been like behind a curtain. Like, so I'm also a pro wrestling manager on independent circuits. <laughs> what? Yeah. So on independent circuits, I'm like I'm like a bad guy manager for for a tag team out in California, and like pro wrestling. Like the, the this isn't in the book. Uh, no, I was not a pro wrestling manager by the okay. time of that book. That was okay. a couple of years ago, yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, like, my music will hit, and I have to come out of a curtain, fog machine, all this stuff. I have to be this character. I have to be a bad guy and get this. I have to get a whole crowd of people to hate me. That's my, my job when I do this stuff. And I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm some weathered, you know, old vet or whatever. I've been doing this for, you know, under a year. 
Um, but you want to talk about anxiety. Like, I'm standing behind a curtain waiting for my music to hit to come out and make everyone boo me. Yeah. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been sitting back there pacing back and forth behind the curtain. Just like, oh, God, okay, this is going to suck. This is going to suck. I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can do it. Then the music hits, and then you just have to tell your brain, just, okay, shut up. Your legs are working. You can walk out there. Go do it. And I, then I find it's always just anticipatory anxiety. The second I walk out from that curtain or the second I sit down and start talking in front of a microphone, you kind of get wrapped up in what you're doing. Um, you kind of forget about all the, that mental chatter. Like, oh, what if I have to run out? Oh, what if I forget my lines? What if I do this? Once you're out there, you just go on instinct. After the break, can you just elaborate on like what do you think it's doing for you? You know, I used to have panic attacks constantly in the dentist. At one point, I was getting a cavity filled, and I had to leave halfway through because I had a panic attack. But now I can go to the dentist with no problem. After this. The Taste the Mediterranean sales event is going on now through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. It's a store-wide event packed with flavor. My family and I are regulars at Whole Foods Market. We've got one, I think, less than a mile and a half away from our house. This Taste the Mediterranean thing sounds pretty cool. Uh, they've got Mediterranean-inspired flavors. You can save on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie, and ground lamb. They've got delectable seafood choices. You can save on whole branzini and sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, which is a regular feature at our dinners in this house. My son loves that salmon from Whole Foods. And I'd be remiss if I didn't point out all of the uh, 365 by Whole Foods Market products. Stock up on wallet-happy Mediterranean essentials like feta cheese crumbles, whole wheat, pita pockets, and more. I am constantly uh, consuming these 365 products, including the the raw cashews, which I snack on all the time. We love the 365 sea salt and pepper. Uh, We love their sushi rice. You get the picture. Go check it out. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Audible lets you enjoy all your audio entertainment in one app. You'll always find the best of what you love or something new to discover. They offer an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre, from bestsellers and new releases to celebrity memoirs, mysteries and thrillers, motivation, wellness, business, and more. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment with highly anticipated new releases and next listen recommendations for every type of thriller listener. The selection over on Audible when it comes to true crime, mystery, and thriller is um, quite extensive. They've got John Grisham, tons of stuff by Stephen King, David Baldacci. My favorite that I've checked out recently in the crime fiction genre is called Age of Vice. It's by Deepthi Kapoor. It came out uh, not long ago. Not only is it thrilling and uh, very, very plotty, but it's also written incredibly well. It's truly literature. Deepthi Kapoor is a a force of nature as a writer. Age of Vice, it takes you into the uh, underworld in New Delhi in India. I absolutely love that one. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500. That's audible.com slash 10% or text 10% to 500-500 to try Audible free for 30 days. Audible.com slash 10%. There's a new answer for people in need of serious pain relief. 
Lidocare has created a one-of-a-kind pain relief patch that blocks pain for up to eight hours. With the only non-water-based lidocaine patch on the market, Lidocare uses patent-pending technology to desensitize aggravated nerves for an odor-free, ultra-flexible, dry, and light solution to pain. The Lidocare Pain Patch from the makers of Blue Emu. For long-lasting relief, you can wear. Available at CVS. How did you first get introduced to meditation, and when did it take? So I got introduced to it, actually, about five months before my first panic attack. Um, it was one of the first classes I took in college. I took, like, a, a pre-freshman year, hey, learn the campus type thing. And two of my classes, uh, or one of my two classes, was uh, Psychology 101. Basic entry-level thing. I had never given any thought to meditation whatsoever. In fact, kind of the way my dad is, I was kind of raised with a very much, like, anything that even had a whiff of new aginess to it, whether it was yoga or meditation or, you know, the more extreme like crystals and all that stuff, it's just, oh, that's bull****, that's crap, that's, you know, that's for hippies, that's, that's idiot stuff. And so I just kind of was raised with this, like, major, like, you said you were skeptical about that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was kind of raised with the full-on, like, hey, this stuff is bad. Like, you know, you don't want to be a part of this. Oh, total antagonism, yes. yeah. And so I had never given any serious thought to meditation whatsoever. And I remember my teacher, this guy, Buddy, uh, who I've been trying to contact uh, or figure out where I, I want to thank him. I just I don't know how to look. I don't know his last name. But he said, uh, he's like, I want to tell you guys about meditation. This is something that I can't stress this enough. If you do this for an hour every day, it will change your life. And I remember thinking, like, an hour a day? That's insane. Like, no one has time to do an hour a day of just sitting there. Uh, but then he wanted to give us an example. So he had us do 10 minutes of guided meditation in the class. All shut our eyes. He kind of went through it. You know, he was not some pro guided meditation guy, but the basics, follow your breath, you know, body scan type stuff, you know, when thoughts come, you know, the things you've heard a million times. And even after 10 minutes, uh, I opened my eyes and I was kind of taken back by, man, this this feels really, really good. And I wasn't thinking of it as a anxiety relief thing because I didn't really have anxiety at that point. Um, but I remembered that, that, that feeling it gave me after that 10 minutes. What was the feeling? Just a calmness, a, a stillness. Uh, a clarity that I don't think uh, I had ever felt before. I've always been very much that kind of multitasking a million things at once, you know, like growing up, just always doing a million things on the computer over here. Like I got Letterman on the TV over here playing games, you know, a million things at once. My head's just bouncing around. I can never sleep. And for once, I felt like I just had a clear mind. I, I just felt like after 10 minutes, okay, I can just focus on something. Um, and, and that was a really profound feeling. And then later on, once I started struggling with anxiety and I saw people recommend meditation, I remembered like, oh yeah, that thing buddy had us do like that felt really good. I could see how that could help. And I do remember back then I was still on campus. I got a hold of the teacher and we started meeting, uh, and I started asking him questions about it and everything. And, uh, I, I got more into it, but I was still just doing like 10 minutes a day. Uh, but even that helped tremendously. And it wasn't until like the last few years, you know, now I'm, I'm pushing close to two hours a day now. Whoa. And it's, uh. It makes a huge, huge difference. Okay, so uh, I have a million questions. <laughs> yeah, um, what kind of meditation are you doing? What's your practice? It's mindfulness. So just give me the nuts and bolts. When you sit down, what do you do? Uh, ideally, you know, if I got an hour, I'm at home, you know, I got a meditation cushion or pillow, you know, I sit on that. Cross leg, uh, you know, I don't do the ohms or the chanting or anything like that. It's mainly following the breath. Uh, a lot of times I'll put on white noise, you know, rain sound effects, whatever, beat stuff. Sometimes, you know, like, you know, I was at uh, at a lake house uh, this weekend and there was a, a big forest and I just did that super cliche thing of going out to the forest and meditating for an hour. Um, but that's not always there. So usually I'm in my bedroom sitting on a pillow, following the breath. When thoughts come in, you know, and just kind of let them go, non judgmental, you know. Um, 
I do it at work every day. We have a quiet room on the fifth floor, which is a very San Francisco thing. It's it's this room that's kind of ostensibly for meditation, uh, but no one uses it for that. Everyone just goes in there to get on their phones and take naps or whatever. Uh, but I actually sit, and they have these really high back chairs where you can sit there, and no one can really see you. And I just sit cross legged. I get to work an hour early, uh, and yeah, follow the breath. Um, I'll do body scan stuff, you know, start of the head or the feet and work through and just notice sensations, itches, things like that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about as basic as it gets. You know, I don't really attach any spirituality to it or anything. I mean, I view it the way I view, you know, if I go on a 10 mile run, you know, my cardio, I'm going to, I'm going to feel better and my cardio will be better. If I do an hour meditation, I just feel less anxious throughout the day and I can sleep better at night. How did you learn how to do it? Is there, is there a, uh, do you, do you go on retreat? Is there a teacher you have a relationship with? Uh, you know, outside of just talking to that teacher way early on, um, it's mainly just been a lot of reading. Uh, you know, your book, uh, yeah, actually before your book, I did read, uh, the power of now and Our reading your, yeah. yeah. And reading your description of that, it was 100% my experience with that, where there would be these moments of just like, wow, I think he's really onto something here. And then these moments of like, what the hell is this guy talking about? Like, this doesn't make any sense. He sounds like a lunatic. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, there, within all that, like lunacy in that book, I think there were some moments of like, okay, yeah, he makes some really good points. And then I read your book afterwards, and through yours, I, I started reading books by Sharon Salzberg and Mark Epstein and uh, uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Uh, you know, I read uh, wherever you go, there you are. You yeah, know, a couple times book. a year. Yeah, it's great. I'm re- rereading it right now. So. so, okay, so you're, you know, it's funny. You're a bit of a, to use a fancy word, autodidact, <laughs> somebody who taught himself. Right. Um, but you're. You're reading the right books, and by which I do not mean my book. My book is more of like a story. It's a very good book. Uh, well, thank you. But I mean, it's more of a. It's like P.T. Barnum as compared to what you could get from Sharon and Mark and all this. I see myself as a gateway drug, so right, that yeah. people get. But that's the helpful. People who know what they're talking about. Well, and you mentioned, I think, when you were talking to the Dalai Lama, that you know you were in your like infancy of of your meditation, even after like ten years. If, if you're an infant in this world, you know, I'm a fetus. You know, I'm still learning this stuff. But yeah, if you can introduce people to that world. I, I think that's powerful. Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, but so, just to b- back to your practice, like you're, it's really interesting because it seems like you've been able to really take it pretty far without, you know, joining some group or or like signing up with a teacher or anything like that. You're just really reading good books, and I think it's interesting that you keep because I feel I see this in my own life going back to the books because you oh, yeah. need to be reminded. Yes. If you go uh, too long without doing it, it, it you lose those those little reminders of oh right that's why I'm doing this that's why I need right. to stay uh, yeah. diligent about this um, and yeah I think the books are a really good way especially if you have a uh, commute you know I've got a commute to and from work every day and I can read I'm not driving uh, so yeah it's just a great daily reminder uh, of why this is important and why I do it because it's easy when you're I talk about this a lot it's like it's easy when you're doing your practice for it to feel stupid and pointless <laughs> but to to read a book by John Kabat Zinn or Sharon Salzberg or Mark Epstein and you get reminded of the intellectual infrastructure of the thing. Like, oh, right. As, just as you said, this is why this is important. Yeah. This is where I'm heading with this. Uh, you mentioned a few of the benefits, but can you just elaborate on, like, what do you think it's doing for you? This, um, this dosage of meditation is pretty high. I, I am able to just kind of control my thoughts in a way uh, that I think people that don't meditate and haven't done it don't really understand its ramifications. It's not just like, hey, I get, I'm more calm. It's being able to control your mind in situations that uh, that are kind of surprising sometimes. Like, uh, good example is a dentist. You know, I used to have panic attacks 
constantly in the dentist. At one point, I was getting a cavity filled, and I had to leave halfway through because I had a panic attack. They gave me a shot of, uh, I can never pronounce it, epinephrine, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I, and they didn't tell me it makes your heart beat faster. So that was the, the Novocaine or whatever. And my heart was beating. I was like, oh, God, I'm having a panic attack. And I just like, I can't do this. And so they had to put a very temporary filling in. So I walked around with a hole in my tooth for a long time. Um, but now I can go to the dentist with no problem. You know, I used to, to dread it. But through meditation and, and the skills I've learned through that, I've learned that when you hear a sound or something, like, you know, if I hear the sound of a drill, you tend to associate it with past experiences. And so if your mind's going like, oh, no, that, that drill reminds me of the time that that happened. I had the pan- panic attack, like, oh, that's totally going to happen again here because that happened before. And all that chatter that goes on because you associate that sound or sitting in that chair with a bad experience. And meditation, like now that I do it so much, I'm able to dissociate from that. I'm just like, I can, I can recognize it as that's a sound. I'm not in pain right now. I, I'm sitting in a chair. I'm sitting in a chair. Like, I know I'm not fooling myself. I know that drill is about to come into my mouth and drill into my tooth. But you know what? I'm not going to make it worse by bracing myself and thinking about all the bad things that have happened before. I'm going to be in the present and deal with it right now. Sounds like textbook application of mindfulness to me. Um, do you, given what I'm hearing from you, which is a real sort of dedication to this practice and, and from what I can tell, a real understanding too, do you think about doing more like going off on retreats or given that you're in San Francisco and there's so many amazing teachers there, maybe having a relationship with a teacher? Yeah, I have. Uh, and I've looked up resources. And I know living in San Francisco, there are more than most major cities. Yeah, sure. and, and I've gone to some. I've gone to some group classes and things like that, you know, some with the Insight, uh, SF Insight. And uh, I find – I'm sure it's different with everyone, but I do better when I'm just on my own, doing my own thing. Is it because the other people there were annoying to you? It's not necessarily <laughs> the other people. No, it's not that. Like, I, I don't necessarily uh, – I'm not bothered by that. Uh, the particular thing I did, there was a lot of, like, you just hear a lot of traffic and a car will be at a red light right outside, you know, blaring music. And, you know, through meditation, you should be able to, you know, just kind of separate that. Um, but considering I can just do it at home and not have to get on two buses to go to a place, and I might as well just do it at home. Um, the but, only unsol- I'm sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, I was going to say as far as the retreat stuff, that very much interests me, uh, um, okay. like, especially reading your experience. You did a week-long one, right, or 10-day? 10, 10 days, yeah. Not yeah. far from you. That's Up north, right, yeah, Marin yeah, County? Yeah. yeah. Spirit Rock. Right, meditation. right. Yes, if you can get past the name. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, that, that's uh, incredibly enticing to me. It's just the logistics of that. You know, I, I live in San Francisco. It's an expensive city. I would need to take a lot of time off work. Uh the logistics are difficult, but at some point when it makes sense, I, I will certainly do a retreat or even a shorter one like that, that four-day retreat that my colleague went on. The, the thing I was going to say when I interrupt you was just that – and this is unsolicited advice, which you should feel to reject – feel free to reject. that it, it, it was a couple years into my practice before I actually struck up a relationship with a teacher, hmm. um, and I found that that upped my game exponentially. Really? So – my teacher is this guy Joseph Goldstein, right. who was in uh, who's in my book, and and it's not that intense. Like a, I see him, either we get on the phone or I see him every couple months, and I just tell him what's going on in my practice, and he gets me out of ruts huh. or or pushes me in directions that I wouldn't have thought of, uh, and that kind of coaching is really what it is is in, is really very very interesting especially if you have a, like I have a lot of respect for Joseph right. we don't have some formal relationship where I'm bowing or anything like that he's just like a really smart guy we're friends um, and and this is a you know most teachers it's not some super expensive thing you know if huh. you if you live in a city where there are teachers you can do this and it's not um, it's not some crazy luxury is it like an hour like therapy session basically where you go in and just discuss the practice we, it's not a therapy session in that I'm not bringing my problems to him right I mean, we sometimes will 
talk about what's going on in my life. But, you know, I have a shrink where we go talk about – I don't go – this is maybe a sign of complacency on my end, but I don't go that often. Um, he was the one who helped me stop doing drugs and things <laughs> like that. But um, uh, although every time I do go, I, he's awesome and he's funny and I really like seeing him. But uh, it, but when I go with him, it's like we talk about the emotional component of things going on in my life with my shrink, with my – Meditation teacher, it's really like the nuts and bolts of your practice. Okay. What are you literally doing when you sit down? What do you, what's the first thing you do? Uh, how long can you stay with the breath? What do you, what do you, what do you do when, what is that moment like when you wake up from distraction? Um, are there maybe other techniques you, you could be using, like mental noting or huh. things like that? And it really just opens your eyes to possibilities you might not have thought of. And, you may describe things that are actually like little ruts or cul-de-sacs that you've gotten mm-hmm. yourself into that you're not even aware of, and the teacher can point that out to you and say, hey, huh. look, you're doing this. I mean, next time that happens, try this. Just through the way you're describing it. Correct. Because obviously he can't see what's going inside in your, in your head, so you're just telling him beat by beat what you're doing. It all the, There's so many variables here. One of huh. the big variables is the quality of your reporting. Right, are right. you an accurate historian of your own practice? And, yeah. and that that is a, a, a big deal. The other variable is the quality of the teacher. <laughs> and like, are, are you clicking with them? And teachers often have their own uh, uh, biases because they know what works for them. Right now, obviously, if you get a lot, if you get a really experienced teacher like Joseph, he's had uh, you know, thousands of students, so he has a pretty good sense of like types of minds. Um, so he doesn't just recommend what's worked for him. He knows he can. I think he has like a taxonomy in his own mind of he can put you in a bucket and say, "Well, other people like you, this has worked," or just try this. I mean, one of Joseph's things is. Just play around. I'll, I'll give you a bunch of options. Try them and see what works. Okay. Really, the test is, is is your mind settling? Are okay. you getting focused? And if it's not working, if, if, if it's conjuring up doubt uh, or things like that, then maybe that's not the technique for you. That sounds extremely helpful to get kind of a personalized uh, coaching like that because I've even taken advice from when I, – I don't remember if it was Goldstein or uh, the girl during the retreat, but I think it was when you were having trouble swall- – or you were swallowing too much. Yeah. And uh, you, you talked to, to Joseph, one of the te- – yeah. That was Joseph. Okay. Yeah. And he told you just like, hey, you're trying too hard. Am I remembering this yes. correctly? That was when you were just well, you're no, overthinking no. this? Or? So, no, no. So, sorry. So there, there, there are two. I oh, okay. went to Joseph and complained about the swallowing, and he said, don't worry about it. Just okay. do it. Don't worry about it. But then there was another time later where I um, was just completely freaking out and wanted to give up. And, oh, right. And, and that was this woman's spring washroom. Who, right, right. By the way, is based in San Francisco, and you could totally go work really? there. And, and even though I um, – Make fun of her in the book. I actually spent time with her recently in San Francisco. She's incredibly cool. Really? Like, she is incredibly cool. I really, really have an enormous amount of affection for her. Okay. If, so if you are looking for a teacher, actually, Spring comes to mind. Okay. There's another guy in San Francisco named Oren Sofer, S-O-F-E-R. He teaches on the 10% Happier app, um, although we would like to get Spring on there, too, at some point. Uh, but they're both based in San Francisco. The type of people that I mean, anybody listening to this, yeah. go to their websites and reach out to them. Um, you know, these meditation teaching is not, and historically has not been, and I, uh, sadly is not right now. You know, a hugely remunerative profession. Right. And so, I, I think all of these people are looking for students. Okay. Yep, I, I actually will totally look into both of them when I get back in town. Because yeah, even that that little advice of you're trying too hard. I, I think about that a lot, even though that wasn't personally directed towards me and the way I meditate, but I'll catch myself getting frustrated. Like, it'll be, you know, 30 minutes into a session, and I'll be thinking, like, man, I've just been elsewhere mentally this entire time. Like, 
I don't think I'm wasting that 30 minutes, but it's like, ah, I, I could have been doing so much better. And I'll kind of beat myself up about it for the next 30 minutes, but then I'll remind myself, like, okay, I'm thinking about this too much. I'm trying too hard. Like, just, just sit here. That's all you got to do here. Uh, so, yeah, if I get too wrapped up and like, okay, follow the breath. You got to follow the breath right now. Like, it doesn't really work. So I, I always do think of that advice that Joseph told you. Man, I have the same problem, which <laughs> is that I do exactly what you just said. And I, I mean, and I, I'm not a teacher, so I just want to make sure that anybody listening to this, and yourself included, doesn't take what I say as gospel. But one of the things that I hear from teachers a lot is that, and this is really counterintuitive for people like us, <laughs> but you need to reframe the moment of waking up from a moment, usually I think a lot of us treat it as a moment of self-laceration and self-judgment of like, oh my God, I've, I've been thinking about lunch for the last 10 right. minutes. You need to reframe that to a win because you are waking up right there. That is the practice. Yeah, the whole practice is realizing when your thoughts are going astray and Correct. bringing them back on track. Correct. So yeah, that, that's a good way to frame it. So reframing that as a win is a, is a is a is a radical shift. I can't say I'm good at it. What I've noticed is that what's happening in my practice is I wake up, I have the moment of that I can't help, a reflexive moment of judgment or whatever, and then I make the conscious choice to be like, oh, dude, welcome back. Yeah. And even if you – where it gets hard is when you have to do it a thousand times very quickly. It can be a little wearing, but – I, th- I have this sense that the art of the practice or one of the arts of the practice is really getting to the place where every time you wake up, it's like, cool. Yeah. I mean, and it's not realistic to expect that every time you sit down for an hour or 10 minutes or anything that like, all right, that was just a straight through, like just followed the breath for an hour. Like, that's not how it works. And like, I'm, I'm no expert, but I can't imagine even like really seasoned longtime uh, meditators. I doubt it every time it's just a 100 percent success rate. Uh, Mark Epstein has uh, Dr. Mark Epstein, who was a recent guest on this podcast, uh, has written many, many excellent books about meditation. Yep. He has a great story about sitting in meditation with Joseph Goldstein, who's my teacher and also Mark's teacher. And, and uh, they were sitting doing meditation, and at the end of the session, they opened their eyes, and Joseph looked at Mark and said, "The mind has no pride." <laughs> great expression, yeah, and, yeah. and that is true. And um, Joseph had been practicing for decades at that point. Yes, you're always going to get lost. And you use the word as a very uh, – is a key phrase. You said expect. Yeah. Expectations are poison for your meditation practice. And I think that's what dissuades a lot of people when they first start is they expect like, okay, I'm going to sit down and do this thing for 10 or 15 minutes. And if I follow my breath, I'm going to – I'm supposed to feel really good right afterwards. And then they do it and it's just like, well, nothing – like – they expect some huge thing, and that's not going to happen. Uh, it's not even necessarily going to happen if you do it for 10 years. It, it, it's not a superpower. Uh, so, yeah, you, you, I think it dissuades a lot of people, and I think you don't really see the benefits until you stick with it for a while and don't let those expectations and lack of meeting them dissuade you. Amen. And Sharon Salzberg, another great teacher who you, who's come up in this conversation, you've read some of her books. She says, you know, she hears from people all the time that, they, oh, yeah, I tried meditation. I can't do it. And she's like, that's like picking up a violin for the first time and thinking you sh- should be able to play Bach. Yeah, this is a yeah. skill. Like, you know, it's going to take a little while. It's not as hard as playing the violin on some on some levels. Um, b- but it is a crazy thing to say that, you know, you expect it to feel awesome the first time you do it. And the other thing is it doesn't – you're not supposed to feel a certain way anyway. The point – and I keep learning this lesson over and over again – is not to feel a certain way. The point is just to feel whatever you feel yeah. clearly so that – when you feel it in your regular life, you're not yanked around by it. Yeah, so you're not changing you, who you are by correct. any means. If you're sitting – if you have a meditation session and you're angry the whole time, and you're, but you're mindful of the anger, mm-hmm. 
That means that when you're angry off the cushion, when your uh, wife or, or boss or colleague says something that just makes you really uh, peeved, that you're not you're less likely to fly off the handle. Yeah, and that's that's where the rubber hits the road. That used the word before superpower. <laughs> it's not a superpower. You said of meditation, but that ability to be mindful of your own emotions and not be yanked around by them that actually is a superpower. I think. Yeah. And it pops up in kind of unexpected ways. You know, I talked about the dentist application or whatever, but uh, I actually read a book about mindful eating. And uh, there was a, uh, a, have you heard of like the cashew trick? Yes. Okay. I often do it with raisins too. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah anything yeah. with like a texture, like a small thing or whatever, where you just spend a lot of time, like before you eat like a single cashew or raisin, you know, a lot of people have probably heard of this, but you know, you're feeling the texture, you're smelling it, all this stuff, uh, and then you put one in your mouth after all this time and you really kind of savor it. And that's you're just focusing on the flavor and you eat like one cashew like that and it's 10 times more uh, pleasurable than, like, you know, just doing the mi- mindless, just shoveling cashews in your mouth, which I did all the time before that. Uh, it's, that that's one of the most effective, quick things uh, to show people if they're curious about meditation. It's just, hey, try this trick here, because I would imagine that would work for almost anyone. You know, I've been thinking about this, uh, this conversation. Where I'm just letting it go down lots of tangents, if you don't mind. But <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about, because I, have, because I find myself now in the position of being, like, a businessman, um, that I have this little startup company that's teaching people how to meditate through an app. uh, I've been thinking a lot about the best ways, like really the best nuts and bolts ways to introduce people to meditation. And something I've been playing with is not fully formed. I actually have to – I think I'm going to be leading a meditation out at TechCrunch in in Oh, right, right. And I've never taught a meditation before, so this is going to be weird for me. But I've been thinking about um, framing it right from the beginning – uh, so I'm not going to make everybody eat uh, cashews or raisins or anything <laughs> like that. So, so that that's not technically feasible. But what if I just frame it right from the beginning of okay? So y- er- most people think they can't meditate, and I'm going to show you in three minutes that you can. In fact, you'll see within the first second that you're winning because if you get distracted and you know you're distracted, that's a win. Yeah, and just framing the whole thing that way. Yeah, simplifying it and yes. making it seem more attainable. Like I, I think in naming you know the app and the book Ten Percent Happier, I think you you did that with that as well. Like well, you're not promising superpowers. You're not promising that you're going to be living on park benches in a state of bliss for the rest of your life. Right. You know, like yes, Eckhart Tolle. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hey, it's ten percent happier. Like it's significant. Uh, so yeah, if you if you frame it that way, it makes it seem less like this just big crazy unattainable thing. Uh, so yeah, that's smart. Uh, but you know, when it comes down to it. You can frame it any way you want, and the the only real way people are going to totally get it is if they really do it and really give it a shot. But yes. it's just getting them in yes. the door is the hard part. But it's getting them in the door, but it's also getting – you can get them in the door. You can get them trying it, but a lot of people on that first time, they sit and they see how crazy their mind is, and they're like, forget <laughs> it. I'm done. I can't do this because it seems so insurmountable because the mind is running rampant. But I guess what I'm toying with is is – Framing it so that you, when you close your eyes and you see that the mind is crazy, that is the victory. Which is the thing that everyone does. And so you know you're going to get 100% success right there. Right. Everyone is going to get that moment of like, oh, I'm thinking too much. Yes. But even that realization is a win. Yeah. Because you yeah. can't unsee that. Once you see that the mind is crazy, <laughs> you, that you realize that you're being yanked around by this thing. Yeah. And that is the fundamental or one of the fundamental insights. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I'm just thinking out loud with you, which is cool. <laughs> so it wasn't just meditation that you used, in fairness, to, to really help you um, get your panic uh, and anxiety disorders under control. And, I, and notice I'm not using the word cure because you right. carefully point out, and I have experienced this myself, there is no cure. Right. There's mitigation. Yep. Um, so other techniques you used were – 
medication, yeah. exercise. Well, those are the two other big ones, medication and exercise. Yeah, you know, I, I've flirted with other things. You know, I tried acupuncture and stuff like that. Like, I, I went into it with kind of this total open mind. Like, okay, I'm going to put aside all the, like, hey, screw all new agey hippie crap or whatever that my, my dad told me. And so I gave everything a shot, basically. You know, I did I did yoga for years, which actually I, I stand by yoga being really, really great as an exercise, not necessarily as, you know, I don't buy into the spiritual side of things or anything. Um, but yeah, like medication, I think it did help for a bit. I'm currently on nothing. Um, I have Xanax. I, I carry it around on a keychain. It's I view it as a fire extinguisher. It's I never use it. Barely ever. Maybe three or four times a year I'll use it. Um, but just knowing that I've got that fire extinguisher on me all the time is, is helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it. I feel like it's something. Maybe I'm just being stubborn, but it's something that I want to control myself. Uh, the idea of going to medication and stuff. I, I always hesitate to say this because for some people it is a huge help and, and it can be it can be greatly helpful for people. But for me, I kind of want to wrangle this myself, and that's why I've always gone towards exercise and meditation. And it's it's finding a balance because right now I'm meditating way more than I ever have. Uh, but that's also kind of come at the expense of like really working out hard. Like this time last year, I, I ran a half marathon. You know, this year the half marathon is coming up and, you know, I put on 30 pounds and stuff. So it's 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 this constant kind of ebb and flow of just like trying yeah. to figure out like, okay, I need to get both of these in because yeah. they both help a lot. So that's still something I'm working on. Um, but it seems to me that med- meditation is the top priority. Well, you're still pretty young. How old are you? I just turned 32 a couple okay, weeks ago. So, yeah. I mean, Look, I'm, I'll be 45 soon. I'm still figuring this stuff yeah. out. So it is, you're right, it is uh, a balance. And I appreciate what you said about medication because yeah. uh, it's a very individual choice. Yeah. But I'm of the view that, you know, you sh- every, people should be open-minded about all of the potential arrows in the quiver, meditation, yeah. medication, eating well, sleeping right, uh, um, exercise, all of these things. You you got to make make your own mix, but they yeah. should all be live options. Yeah, as long as it's not harmful and, and you're doing it the right way. You know, you're talking to doctors about it and everything. Like, I think it's literally the first thing I said in in the book is, "Hey, I am not a doctor. Do not like I, I can tell my story and tell you what worked for me, but everyone's going to be different. Um, it's different with every person. But all I can do is share my story and what's worked for me. You even by the end of the book, you're, you're describing sort of your life as it well was when you were finished writing the book, which is probably like a year and a half ago. Um, but you said there are some residuals uh, from, you know, these disorders that you struggle with. Oh, yeah. One of them is that you mentioned and I was just curious about is that you have actually you have trouble eating in front of other people. Is that still? A, a yeah, thing? that that's a, it's just a weird thing. And, and I still struggle with that. You know, I've been uh, eating with my girlfriend's family since I've been visiting. And, you know, I'm always the last person to finish. You know, whenever like it's a work lunch or something like that, I always got to box up something and, and take it home. Why, why is that? It's it's incredibly frustrating because I know that there is no physical or biological reason that I, I'm not swallowing faster. It's just one of those weird mental hangups, um, and it, it's been with me for you know uh, about as long as the anxiety has. And there have been years where I've ate just like a totally normal person, but then there are times where I've got the smallest little bit of uh, beef in my mouth, just the smallest bit, like a little a little pea sized thing. And I'm like, okay, Dan, okay, logically, I I know that I can swallow this. There's nothing stopping me. Okay, one, two, three, do it. And it's just some weird mental block. Uh, and, man, I, I don't know. Like, I, I've always been quick to any ailment or any issue I'm going through. I'm just, uh, anxiety, anxiety. So I don't know. Maybe there's a whole other thing that causes this. Uh, but it feels like an anxiety thing to me because it feels totally mental. Um, but, yeah, I'll have whole meals where I don't have an issue whatsoever or whole, you know, several weeks. And then I'll have, like, one meal that takes me an hour and a half to finish. Um, 
So that's one of the things I'm trying to work on now. Uh, that's that's one of the most frustrating ones because it turns out you have to eat every day. Um, yeah. yeah. What about therapy? I, I do that. Uh, in fact, I just uh, kind of finished with a therapist in San Francisco that I saw for the better part of a year. And uh, I have found that to be uh, very helpful uh, as far as just kind of unpacking your history and what might have led to certain things. And uh, it, you can stumble onto some realizations about why you are the way you are that you never thought of. Um, and so we did that. We, we did almost a year, and I, I came to a lot of realizations about you know, some, some of the more undesirable aspects of my personality that I want to work on um, that I hadn't thought of before I went in there. And so but it did get to a point where we'd kind of like unpacked all the past uh, that we could talk about. It felt like we were kind of going over territory again. Uh, and so we, we did stop. You know, I'll probably go back at some point. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think I have a pretty good grasp on why I am the way I am and what I need to work on. Uh, so as of right now, I'm not uh, in therapy or on medication. Right, but you keep the those doors open. Oh, 100%. Like, and, and I think it is extremely helpful. Um, yeah, I can't stress that enough. It's just we got to a point where we just kind of – I'd come in every week and be like, nah, you know, I'm doing all right, I guess. And it's like when we sit there for an hour and like, oh, let's talk about my dad for a little bit. And it's like, okay, we've talked about this a million times. So, you know, it's – we're going to take a break for now. What is your dad? You talk about in the book that your dad was not super, and you've talked about it a little bit in this interview, that your dad was a little bit dismissive of, <laughs> you say very, just, just just in defense of your dad, that he was a great dad, and you, yes. have, you have a great relationship I want to stress that, yeah. Um, but that he was a little dismissive because of his own cultural conditioning. <laughs> a little. <laughs> of, of your panic and anxiety. And how are how is that now, and, and he, what are your he's feelings? He's much more understanding now. Um I think it's helped, too, because my sister, uh, Alyssa, when she reached uh, 18, which is the age that I started having these issues, she started having the exact same issues. And I think that made him realize, like, oh, it's not just Dan being weird. Um, uh, and also, uh, you know, he read the book and everything, and he got a hold of me and apologized and everything. He's like, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I think I made some mistakes with how I dealt with that. You know, I'm really – I apologize for that. I see now that you're really going through some stuff. Um but yeah, he, he was extremely uh, dismissive, just in general. Uh, he's just one of those guys that if you're not doing things exactly the way he does them, it's not that you're doing things differently, it's that you're wrong. It's like, well, if you like soccer, that's not a real sport, so you're wrong and you're stupid. If you don't like Led Zeppelin, you're stupid. You know, like, stuff like that. Like, you know, well, he is right about that. He, oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, things that on the surface I agree with. I don't like soccer. I think soccer's boring. I think Led Zeppelin's awesome. But now <laughs> I, I'm much more like when people don't like the same stuff I like or they get really passionate about something that I don't care about, I'm, I'm not I, – I don't go into that mindset of just like, oh, well, you're wrong. No, I, I'm the right way. This is the right opinion to have, which is, is very much how he pretty much always has been. Have you run into as you – to the extent that you even discuss your meditation habit with uh, people in the video game world, are people cool with that or do they think it's weird or they just dis- – are they dismissive? You know, I haven't seen any, like, super negative stuff, which is kind of surprising. In the gaming community, uh, there's a lot of very harsh opinions, either, like, you're just the biggest fan in the world of something, or this thing needs to go away, and this thing, like, these games never need to be made, and, you know, anyone who plays them, basically my dad's thing, like, if you play these games, you're stupid. Um, so, yeah, I, I've seen no negative uh, reactions whatsoever. I've never seen any, like, oh, I wish Dan Riker would stop talking about the uh, meditation stuff on the podcast, which I try not to do it that much. Um, Did I pronounce your name correctly at the beginning of this? Did everyone says record the first time. It's record, yeah, that's fine. Oh, man. <laughs> no, don't worry about it. Everyone okay. does that. Everyone misspells it, too. Um, but no, I, I've gotten tons and tons of feedback from people uh, thanking me, whether it's a DM on Twitter or something, uh, for writing the book and for being open about this, because there aren't that many people in this industry that are open about it. And I think it's this thing that is still kind of like, 
whispered about sometimes. Like, we'll do these panels uh, at these conventions, and a lot of times we, we do, like, meet-and-greet stuff afterwards. People can take pictures with us, autographs, whatever. And it's funny because a lot of people will kind of wait until the crowd is dispersed a bit, and they'll kind of pull me aside and like, in hushed tones, but, hey, man, I just really want to thank you for, you know, talking about anxiety. Like, you know, it's something I've really struggled with. I, I've never seen anyone I could relate to that talked to this because these are not guys that are going to, you know, these gurus. They're not going to, like... These big, like you look at these people like Deepak Chopra or Tony Robbins, like these big, you know, like gurus. I don't even really know if Tony Robbins does meditation, but you know what I mean. Those type of guys, and they're not relatable to just your average twenty, thirty something gamer. Uh, I, I saw a space where no one was talking about this, and I wanted to be open about it. And it seems like it's really resonated with a lot of our audience. And uh, so, yeah, the feedback has been tremendous. Well, I'm glad you're doing it. And, you know, I, I, people ask me a, a lot when I'm talking about meditation, you know, how do we get this into different communities? Um, specifically, often one of the issues is, you know, uh, low-income communities or uh, communities of color. But I, I actually take it beyond that. I mean, it's gaming communities, athletes, executives, yep. uh, LGBT community, everyone. And I, so one of the th- reasons why I'm so psyched that ABC News is letting me do this podcast <laughs> is that I can – bring on all of these different voices and give them, uh, I hope, a little bit more of a platform because that's the way this, what I think is a public health revolution, is going to spread is when you get spokespeople who organically speak to the different communities. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to, to run the spectrum of communities, you've gone from the Dalai Lama to RuPaul to me, so I yes. think you're really getting a broad <laughs> broad stroke here. So. Uh, I'm doing my job. Well, this all came because you reached out to me, so thank yeah. you very much for doing it. I really appreciate yeah, and it. Thank you for the book and everything. It's one of the first things I recommend to people when they want to get into it. I appreciate that. Uh, before we go, any other words of wisdom you want to drop on us? Any other science? I mean, drop? I'm not the guy to give science, uh, but I, I can just say uh, it's the easiest thing in the world to try. Like, there's no excuse to not try. Everyone has 10 minutes. Everyone can find a place to sit down. Everyone can, even if it's noisy, put in some some headphones or whatever and put on some white noise. It doesn't cost any money. Like, there's really no reason to not try. And I'm not going to, like, get on a soapbox and yell at someone if if they don't don't want to. But if you're even the slightest bit interested in when they hear people like me and you talk about this, try it. Just take 10 minutes. Just try it. You're not going to be great at it the first time. You're probably going to be, you know, elsewhere mentally the whole time. But just try it, and you get better, you know. Do an experiment. Do a month where you're going to do 10 minutes every day. It, it helps. It helps tremendously. It's helped more than anything I've ever done. All right, there's another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you like it, I'm going to hit you up for a favor. Please subscribe to it, review it, and rate it. Uh, I want to also thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, Sarah Amos, and the head of ABC News Digital, Dan Silver. And uh, hit me up at Twitter, Dan B. Harris. See you next time. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. If you travel, you know when it comes to love. See you soon. Can't wait. The sky is no limit. You know with your Delta Amex card, being oceans apart means meeting in Aruba. And booking a war travel with your card means saving 15% on Delta flights. You know kissing under the bridge of size guarantees eternal love. Because you're the long-distance lovebirds. It's why you're a Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card member. If you travel, you know. 
Takeoff 15 discount not applicable to partner operated flights or taxes and fees. Terms apply. Visit go.amic slash you know. The early 2000s was a breeding ground for bad reality competition series. From shows like Kid Nation, CBS's weird Lord of the Flies style social experiment that took 40 kids to live by themselves in a ghost town, to The Swan, a horrifying concept where women spent months undergoing a physical transformation and then were made to compete in a beauty pageant. Hi, I'm Misha Brown, and I'm the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each episode, comedians join me to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Recently on The Big Flop, we looked at the reality TV show, The Swan. The problem? This dream opportunity quickly became a viewing nightmare. They were isolated for weeks, berated, operated on, and then were ranked by a panel of judges. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts.